As I said moments ago, we're going to look this morning at preaching. And what place does preaching have in the church? And is it central to the church, or is it, is it a tradition, and we do it merely out of tradition, or is this a provision of the Lord, and uh, various things about what should be accomplished during the sermon. So let me get you into the context here of Nehemiah chapter 8. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem was overtaken and sacked by the Babylonians. If you read the scriptures, you'll see that the Babylonians were raised up by God to punish his people, Israel, for disobedience and lack of adherence to his commands. And so the Babylonians did a really good job because they tore Jerusalem down almost to the ground. Fifty years later, in 536 B.C., the Jews began to trickle back into Jerusalem. God's bringing them back. And they begin a rebuilding process. And you can watch through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that this rebuilding process started with the altar. And once they got the altar rebuilt, they then rebuilt the temple. And once they got the temple rebuilt, they rebuilt the wall around the city of Jerusalem. So they started in the center and rebuilt their way out, prioritizing the most important, and that's the altar of God himself. We see in this that our God was faithful like he was to Jonah. That theme will come up every time we open the Bible. He was faithful to Israel just as he was faithful to Jonah because God promised and always has promised that there will be a remnant of his people that will exist forever. And the people of God cannot be snuffed out. No matter what you do to their temples, to their altars, to their cities, to their city walls, there will always, always, always be a people of God. You know, Jesus said this, we've looked at this in the last two weeks. You, Peter, based on this profession, you are, the, you are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And what did he say? And the gates of hell, hell shall not prevail against her. Same concept here with Israel back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so there will forever be a people of God. There will forever be the worship of God amongst his people until that day with a capital D that we keep talking about when Jesus comes again. There will always, always be a people of God. Well, God raised up two men who were instruments in his hand, unique instruments in his hand in this rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and the altar. The first was Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you can consider Nehemiah an administrative guru, a leader of leaders. He was a project manager, and he was well adept at leading the rebuilding process of altars in, in the temple and the wall, and he was able to assemble all the labor and all the materials and lead the people to courageously work through a lot of hostile objections to what they were doing from other, other people. So Nehemiah was integral to that, and he was the administrative guy. And then there was another man named Ezra. And Ezra was raised up by God to be the spiritual leader of the rebuilding of the community of Jerusalem and to make sure that they rebuilt their hearts around God. He was a, he was a priest, he was a scribe, and he was very, very well versed in the law, the book of the law that we're going to read about. And so Nehemiah and Ezra are these partners, these instruments in the hands of God to bring about the rebuilding of Jerusalem so that this remnant would have a place to worship and to live and to thrive. 
And it's a fascinating history. It's true history. Remember, this is not fairy tale. This is true world history that we're looking at here. And it's kingdom history as well, the kingdom of God. And so now, I want us to look at chapter 8 of Nehemiah, verse 1. And I want you to humor me one more time, and I want you to stand as we read this. And I think you'll see why in a moment. I want you to stand at the reading of the Word of God. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Let me just say for a moment, look back up at verse 66 of chapter 7. This is 42,360 people. Okay, Have that context in your mind as we read this. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You can be seated. What we have here is a picture of what I pray happens every Sunday when we gather. And I want to show you this morning that central to church is the moment when a man stands before some people and opens the book of the law of God, the word of God, 
and says, Thus saith the Lord. This is not a tradition that we do and we yawn our way through. This is not something that got started in the, in, in the Middle Ages. Okay, this started back long, long ago. And this is a provision from the Lord because he had his laws written in a book and then he intended for men to stand before people and read his law to them and to give them understanding so that they could be right before him. So I want to tell you right out of the gate, I'm going to show you my hand. I'm going to tell you that preaching is not on its way out. Preaching is not just a tradition. Preaching is central to God's people so long as it's the preaching of this. And we'll go there in a moment. This is not a time for a guy to stand up and give a speech. This is a time for a man to open the book that God has provided his people and to say, here's what God would have for us today. So preaching is a really, really big deal in the church. Let's go through and I want to look, look at this verse. We'll unpack some, some features in this passage uh, verse by verse and make sure that we walk away understanding what God's provision was for in preaching. And let's just start in verse 1, and let me just bring some things to your attention. I'll read 1 through 2 real quickly again. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the, law, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So the people of God are unified. Remember I said there's 42,000 people in this assembly. And these 42,000 people gather together as one man. Oh, I pray that we are gathered together here as one body of people, man, woman, and child. I pray that that's how we are. We're not divided as we come to this moment, but we're together. And we are gathered together anticipating what God's going to say to us. And look what they've gathered around. It's a central moment. It's a central purpose. And it is the book of the law of Moses. They've not gathered to hear Ezra make a speech. They're not there out of reverence for Ezra. They're there out of anticipation of hearing from God through his book that he gave and recorded through Moses. What is this book of the law of Moses? There's a little bit of debate out there, and it's a debate that really doesn't matter. <laughs> Some people say it's Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Others think it's just the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, I've not spent a lot of time to figure out where I come down, but if you put me to the, to the spot, the spot, I'd say it's the book of Deuteronomy. That, uh, that Ezra was devoted to reading because it is the second giving of the law and it's, it's oftentimes referred to in the Bible as the book of the law. And so they've gathered to hear a man, Ezra, read from this book. And as I said, this isn't about Ezra. Ezra's merely conduit. Okay? This is not them hearing Ezra speak. They are hearing the Lord speak through his book that Ezra is the conduit through which it's being read. Very important point. So here we have a united body of people gathered around to hear from God in his words, picking up in verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to what? Not Ezra. To the book of the law. 
Now just look at this for a moment. Look at the time devoted to preaching God's Word. Early morning until midday. My estimation, I'm saying that's anywhere from 8 to noon. So that's four hours, maybe it's six hours, six to noon. They devoted themselves to hearing a sermon from Ezra. Some of you are sweating bullets right about now. You're looking at your watch wondering how in the world are we going to get through all this in the next uh, 35 minutes or so. And I want to say, I want to acknowledge the truth. I've been known to preach a long sermon. <laughs> right? Come on. Amen? I've been known to preach a long sermon. I have been known to be shocked at how long my sermons are. <laughs> I promise you I don't sit up here and say this one's going 60 minutes today. There are times that I've gotten caught up in the moment. I hope, though, that you know that I am sensitive to how long you can endure. There, there, there's a reality here. We're human beings, and, and I am sensitive to that, and I'm checking myself on that quite often. So know that and pray for me on that. But I also want you to know that there are moments where we can't skip over this. And there's moments where it's going to be 54-minute long sermon, as it was last week, and I was stunned, by the way. But I looked at that sermon, and there's not anything that I would retract. And I really think we needed that that morning. So I want you to bear with me and to know that I'm not up here speechifying and wanting you to see me and how eloquent I can handle the Bible. No, I really, really seek the Lord during the week. And I really come before you saying, this is what I think God has got for us to hear this morning as a congregation. And I pray that you'll pray for me, but you'll also embrace it as from the Lord. Now, if you see me talking about me way too much, we've got a problem. And so come talk to me about that. I've got five elders that will keep me honest, I promise you. They're on me like border collies on that issue. So that was a quick aside, but look at the time that these Israelites devoted to the reading of the Word of God. Wow, 42,000 of them stood as one man. This is no quick and trivial reading of Scripture. This isn't where a pastor stands up and takes an obligatory verse, cites it, and then launches off into the wild blue yonder on whatever pet peeve issue he wants to manipulate people with this week. No, these people were riveted on the Word of God for four to six hours. Ezra faithfully opened the Word of God, and he proclaimed what God said not what he wanted to say. The people were attentive not to Ezra, but to the book of the law. And they were focused on it, not him, the, the means through which it was delivered. And they were absolutely convinced. They were absolutely convinced that this word was worthy of their undivided attention for a long, long time. Are you that convinced every morning when we gather and a man stands up here and opens this? Are you that convinced that you must hear what's about to be said? If you believe you've got faithful pastors here that are faithful to pursuing God and His Word and proclaiming that to you, then I say to you, please come with anticipation to hear from God as we speak through His Word to you. Verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. Look familiar? It's a wooden platform. Uh, this is an early pulpit back in the days of Israel that we're reading about. It's the prototypical pulpit that today we see here. And it is for the promotion of the hearing and the communication of God's Word, not for the promotion of Ezra. He's not put up on a pedestal because he's a holy man. 
He's put up so that communication is facilitated and people are not distracted and are able to see and hear the proclamation of the word. So this is a practical measure so that Ezra could communicate. And look, we have six men on his right hand and seven men on his left. Some say they may be priests. I think it's better to say that they are lay leaders of the community because in a moment we're going to see that the Levites are specified when we see these other 13 men that are named. But we've got leaders in the Israelite community, in the, in the community of Jerusalem, that are standing in unison with Ezra as he reads from the Word of God. So this involved the whole community, including governmental leaders of, of the Israelite community. So that's the moment of preaching. We've just unpacked the moment of the sermon and just kind of set the scene for what's happening. Let's now look at the participants of the sermon. I want you to take special note in verses 5 through 8 at the participants and what their role is in the proclamation of this sermon. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people on that platform. And as he opened it, all the people stood. That's powerful. That's powerful. That is an ultimate sign of reverence that they would stand. Note when these people stood. It was not when Ezra got up there and got into the pulpit up on that platform. They didn't rise because the Pope has, has arrived. No, they're sitting and only when he now opens the book of the law of Moses, the law of God, does every one of these 42,000 people rise in reverence for the word. And look at the characters in this scene. I want to say, first of all, that yes, we have all these people. They've arisen. Their ears are attentive. They're standing in reverence. They're not standing out of reverence for Ezra. It's for the book of the law. And then we have Ezra, who's standing in the pulpit, opening the book of the law. And then we have one other person, one other participant in this, and it's God. Because God ordained this moment. They didn't dream this up on their own. They are to read, they are to assemble and read the word of God often. They are dedicating themselves back to God. And God provided the very word that Ezra is now reading. So God's made provision for this moment to happen. And it's a provision that's built out of grace because these were an obstinate and stiff-necked people that defied him and got sent into the Babylonian captivity for 70-some-odd years. And yet he's still making provision for them to hear from him. And I want to ask you this morning, what does this look like in our present day context? We cannot come into a place like this and sit back in our chairs and cross our arms and take in a sermon. That's not what's happening here with these Israelites. They are standing in attention. It says their ears are inclined to the Word of God. Not Ezra, to the Word of God. They have that much reverence and that much need, and they're aware of it. And they respond in kind. We need to have attentive ears. I even want to tell you, you need to have blind eyes in here. You need to get over me. You need to not worry about what I'm wearing, how I speak, am I funny, am I serious. You need to look at what's coming out of my mouth and apply that to your lives. Now, you can't totally get me out of your sight, but to the degree that you can, you need to be praying, Father, help me not to see the messenger. Help me to hear this message because I am desperate for your truth from your word, and this guy is bringing it to us. And so we need to have attentive ears 
and blind eyes. We need to be sitting on the edge of our seats figuratively. We need to be in an athletic position. If you play sports, I don't care if you're a shortstop or a point guard or a defensive back. Your coach is going to tell you to get on the balls of your feet and be ready for action. When we listen to sermons, we need to be on the balls of our feet, not on our heels. We need to be ready to hear and to respond and to obey the Word of God. Are you on the balls of your feet? Are you on the edge of your seat? Is your heart jumping out of you saying, I got a moment here that I get to hear from God. I need it because it's going to be seven days before I get it again. Although you could come tonight and Wednesday night and get some more. So we must come aggressive to the time of preaching. And I'm going to ask you to work as hard as I am through the sermon. I've worked hard all week on this. I'm working hard right now. And you need to join me in this labor. And you need to work hard to receive and to apply the Word of God to your life. Look at verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So together, Ezra and 42,000 people... Yes, with some of his leadership. Worship the living God, the great God, together. That's what we need to be about here today. I need to be very subtly before you, leading all of us to worship the risen Jesus Christ. But the temptation is there for preachers to promote themselves. I'm going to tell you it's fierce. You, you need to know, standing up here over time, you can say, this is my pulpit. And what am I going to say to my people instead of, Lord, what would you say to your people? The temptation's real. You want to know how to pray for your pastor? Anybody else that comes up here and preaches? Father, deliver them from the evil temptation to promote themselves and to get distracted away from you and your word. And it's intense. It's intense. This calling to be a pastor, one who proclaims the word of God, it's a dangerous, dangerous calling. Because if we get off center and defy what God has ordained for this role to be, it will be ugly and many people will be per affected by it. So the temptation is for us to make us the center of the sermon in our performance and in our words, and you need to be praying against that every time we stand up. No man can bear witness to Christ and to himself at the same time. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. What's our verse as a church? He must increase, but I must decrease. I promise you, I pray that every week as I prepare a sermon. And as I walk these steps, Father... May I decrease so that your son Jesus may be increased in this moment. Well, guess what? That applies to you too. As you listen to a sermon, you need to be saying, Jesus, increase and decrease me right now in this moment. I want you to be amplified in my sight and in my hearing, and I want to shuck off everything in this world that would distract me from this sermon, including myself. Decrease me and increase in my vision through your preaching of your word. That's how you practically take that verse that we've memorized as a congregation and apply it every time you gather here on Sunday morning. He must increase, and the preacher must decrease. So be careful. This is true for all of us, especially the hearer and the preacher. 
the people respond to Ezra's God-centered leadership by doing three things. Number one, they say amen and amen. Amen is Hebrew. In fact, when we end our prayers, we end our prayers with a Hebrew word, amen. In Greek, it's amen, and in English, it's amen, and we are saying yes, so be it. I affirm this. This is true. This is good. This is right. When we say amen to God, we are saying yes to God. Because why? Because all of his promises to us are yes in Christ. Therefore, we say yes to him through Christ. And so they are affirming what Ezra has read from the word. And they're saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We receive this. This is good. And then next, what do they do? They raise their hands, demonstrating their need for God's word, their desperation. They're saying, bring it, yes. Bring it on. I need that in my life. And then thirdly, they are bowing themselves in humility to their God, saying, I am not worthy, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to hear from you. Do you identify with any of these responses on Sunday morning? Maybe there's an occasional Sunday where, where there's a special uh, application to the message that just grips you, but every Sunday, can you say that you can come in here and you can say amen to what's been preached? That you can raise your hands and say, oh, I need that even though it hurts? That conviction doesn't feel good? I need this? And then can you bow and say, Father, thank you for giving me this. I'm not worthy of it, but you did, and I'm better for it. May you be glorified. That's the definition of what you should experience on Sunday mornings, provided that there's a faithful person up here proclaiming the Word of God. So we pick up in verse 7. There's 13 more men that are named here. I think they're referred to as Levites. And they helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So I think what we have here is, is ancient microphone and speaker technology. <laughs> 42,000 people, one man on a platform. There's got to be Levites walking amongst the crowd. They have copies of the law as well, and they are reading it so that everybody can hear clearly the word. Okay? They're not in a coliseum where, this is, where the sound effects are carried. I think they needed people to walk amongst them to reiterate and to reread what Ezra is reading from the platform. And look what it says. They needed to be taught the word of God. These Levites went through reading from the book and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. There had to be some explanation. And I think there's some other things going on here. You need to keep in mind that these people, these 42,000 people, have just come off of a Babylonian captivity for some 70 years. So just about every one of these, their entire life, they lived in the Babylonian captivity. Well, the Babylonians spoke Aramaic. So these people grew up in a, in a society where they didn't even speak Hebrew in everyday life. Now, maybe they spoke it in their homes to keep the tradition going, like my grandparents kept speaking German when my dad was growing up, but they don't have a mastery of the Hebrew language. They are Aramaic-speaking people, probably at this point. Also, they had entirely adopted to, adapted to the Babylonian culture. And it's a pagan culture. And these people, they're hearing this word from God in the book of the law, and it doesn't sound like anything that they've grown up on, and it doesn't look 
like anything they've grown up on. They needed someone to walk amongst them and give explanation and meaning. They were uninformed and they need training. And I'm going to tell you the application is very clear for us today. Do you understand that we live in a foreign land? Do you understand that we, we live in a land that's language doesn't reflect this? The world does not speak this language. And we live in a land and its culture is nothing like what God calls his people to be about. We are just exactly like the Israelites in this Nehemiah passage. Remember last Sunday I said that local churches are like foreign embassies. We, we don't belong here. We are foreigners. We are aliens. We are sojourners on this earth. Our true kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It's a new heavens and a new earth that will come one day. And so we're ventured at, we've ventured out into the frontiers where this is not home. And we need embassies to go in where our language is spoken and our culture is commonly understood. And God provided us embassies with local churches. And so we are just like these people. And guess what? Yes, we do need the Word of God opened up to us, and we need it explained. And the sense of this needs to be given to us so that we can hear it and apply it and accept it and be changed by it. I think we're just like the Israelites. I think we're just like them. And, and if anything, I am an Ezra figure right now, but I'm saying, here's what God has for us, not me. This is not a tricky sermon. <laughs> There's no human ingenuity here. I'm strictly showing you what happened in Nehemiah's day and in Ezra's day and what God has provided for his people, and it's called the proclamation of his word by the reading of his word. And so I pray every Sunday and every week as I prepare that I would be able to give sense to the words of Jonah, for instance. And that I would be able to explain Jonah in a faithful way as God intended it to be explained. And that I could be used by God to apply it to our lives so that we see God for who he really is and who we are for who we really are. So that's what's happening every time we gather together here like this. So we have a need for the word of God to be explained and applied to our lives so that we understand it and so that we embrace it. And so that, and so that. We are drawn out of captivity, out of captivity, into a right standing with our Father. And there's a lot of men here. There's 13 more men that are doing this. Like I said, I think they're Levites that are helping to teach God's Word. And in the end, the people have an understanding. And this was the goal of assembling the 42,000 at the foot of the platform that Ezra stood on. Now we go to verses 9 through 12. And let's look at the effect of the reading of the Word of God. So verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. Just an interesting exercise for, for a sense of the unity of these 42,000. Through this passage, you will see all the people, all the people, all the people, this phrase, all the people, over and over again. There were not factions, not one group of people over here responded, but this group was stiff-necked and obstinate and said, forget you, that doesn't make sense. No, all the people, 
all the people united heard this, and it struck them, didn't it? Because we see here, they wept as they heard the word of the law. They didn't weep because it was beautiful poetry. They wept because they were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they had defied God in areas of their life. And I think they discovered now why it was that they had been in 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Because they had defied the instructions of the Lord. And so they were convicted of their disobedience to God and His commands. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Right over in the New Testament after the book of John. Acts chapter 2. I want to show you a New Testament picture of this very thing happening to really hit home the point that we see here in Nehemiah's book. Look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verses, verse 40, I'm sorry, verse 36 and following. Now what's going on here, this is Peter preaching right after Pentecost and he's standing before some Jewish people. And he basically says to the Jewish people, you crucified Jesus Christ. In fact, look in verse 35. Verse 35. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 36. There we go. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And look what it says their response is. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I think the Israelites that heard Ezra read from the book of the law were cut to the heart. And they had defied God and disobeyed God. And now they are weeping because they know that they are wrong with their maker. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? You see the urgency in them understanding now that they're wrong with God. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the only correct response that we can give to the proclamation of the word of God. What the Israelites did here in Nehemiah and what those Jews did in, in the sermon after Pentecost from Peter is when we find out in a sermon that there is something in our life that's not right with God's Word, we need to repent and we need to weep and we need to be sorry towards God for this sin. And let me tell you, I read James chapter 1. You know, we don't want to be this guy that comes and looks at our face in the mirror and walks away and forgets it, right? It's a dangerous thing to come to a sermon time and let it go in one ear and out the other and walk back out on the street and see you next week. That's dangerous. That's deadly dangerous. We've got to be on the balls of our feet, ready to hear the word of God and be ready to respond in repentance should we be wrong with him as we hear this sermon. They understood their Babylonian captivity now, I think, once and for all. And isn't it so gracious that God would pull all these people together for this moment to hear from him? This is just like God pursuing the fugitive Jonah in the bottom of a boat, isn't it? It's just like him to go gather these 42,000 back together again and say, Hey, come here. Hear from me and obey me and it will be well with you. So what are you captive to? That's what you need to ask every Sunday when you come in. This is what's being preached. Is this touching on something that I'm in captivity towards? 
Is there something that's got me in bondage like Babylon? And am I being called to shuck it off and to return to the Lord? And what we look for in this is this godly grief. You remember our memory verse as a church two weeks ago? Godly grief produces repentance that brings about salvation without regret. This is exactly what we're looking for. When we preach the Word of God, if there is some area in your life that you're wrong with God on, you should be grieved about that. Not angered, but grieved, cut to the heart. And in that moment, if you repent, you're forgiven, you're given salvation. And then look what it says. Well, we'll go there in a minute. I don't, want, I don't want to go there yet. We need to be godly grieved, and we need to repent so that we can be delivered from this bondage that we live in. Now let's look at verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So when there's true repentance, God forgives and forgets, right, from Jonah? And our God holds no grudges. And then listen to this. Back to that Second Corinthians passage. For godly grief produces repentance that brings about salvation without regret. Without regret. Those should be the sweetest words in that passage to you. Do you embrace those for all they are? These people in Nehemiah's day, they're grieved because they understand now that they have defied God. They've lived contrary to his laws. They're sorrowful, and these Ezra and these priests walk amongst them, and they say, don't be sorry. You have been grieved in a godly way. You have repented. You're forgiven, and now you can live without regret. That's an incredible God. That's a God that doesn't hold grudges, that's not bitter and angry and a mean old guy upstairs. Uh-uh. He's a gracious God that pursues his fugitives. He convicts them of their wrong. And when they repent, he forgives them to the degree, to the degree that they can now live without regret. Do you want to live without regret? You know you've wronged God. There's not a one of us in here, including me, that has not wronged God this week. Even, I dare say, this day. And we can truly, in a way, understand that we've wronged him, repent to him, and he'll forgive us. And then I can stand before you and preach without regret. If that without regret piece didn't exist, I don't think I could come stand up here before you every week. I don't think I could do it. Let, let me tell you, when I, when, when I prepare to preach, the conviction is intense all week long. I'm swimming in the scriptures that are going to be proclaimed, and there's a lot that don't even get delivered on Sunday morning. And the conviction is heavy and intense and all the time. And I am basically repenting all week long as I discover the truths of the scripture and how my life doesn't line up with it. And that's called the human life. We live in a fallen age. And as I stand before you, I can only do it because I can live without regret because it's not cheap grace. No, Christ died 
for my sins. And I've professed him as Lord. And I believe in him as my substitute on the cross. And I absolutely declare to you he rose on the third day from the grave. And if he didn't, then I can't live without regret. And only because of that truth can I stand before you upright and and proclaim to you boldly what the Lord would have us to hear as a congregation. So I'm a guy that lives without regret so long as I'm godly repentant. But that worldly grief, the second part of that verse, produces death, right? And if we are about worldly grief, there's nothing but bad waiting for us because we are not repentant and we will not be forgiven for those sins. So godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. When there's true repentance, joy can be had again. That's the message here. These people are sorry, and they say, Rejoice, for today is a holy day. Today is a good day in your life. And so I'll close with this. One of the goals of preaching is this. And, And I pray this three or four times a week. And I pray this often as we're singing right before I come up. One of the goals of sermons is to afflict the comfortable among you and to comfort the afflicted among you. Some of us, including me when I'm in the study during the week, I am quite complacent in my faith. And I'm comfortable. And I get afflicted when I encounter the Word of God. Sometimes I get afflicted when art comes into my office. Or Friday morning in an elders meeting. I get some affliction because I'm blind to some things in my life and we're pretty open with one another and I can get afflicted in my comfort. That's the value of having a church, by the way. We need to afflict one another where we're comfortable and apathetic and complacent. But then there's the other piece. I pray, pray, God, please help me to comfort the afflicted amongst us. Some are afflicted because of things going on in life and they need the comfort of hearing the Word of God and applying it to their lives. Some are going to get afflicted during a sermon and then I want to turn and comfort them just as these Levites said to the Israelites, hey, don't, don't weep anymore. Rejoice. You've been forgiven. So, I would challenge you as a congregation to pray with me during the week and on Sunday mornings as we come to this moment. Father, afflict me where I'm comfortable and comfort me where I'm afflicted. And would you do it through the moment when Edward or whoever opens this Bible and says your words to us. That's a great prayer. Now you're active in the sermon. Now you're sitting on the edge of your seat anticipating God to do something in your lives. So this morning, I would ask you, what's keeping you from weeping like the Israelites here? Is it a stiff neck? Is it a proud heart? Each week you need to ask, what would keep me from being godly grieved to the point that I'm going to repent so that I can ultimately be saved and live without regret? In the the Old Testament, God gave the people the law. And this law was how he communicated to them what he expected of them, how they should worship him. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And the only way we can read the law of God is to know that it's been fulfilled in Christ. He's done something with the law that we can't. He's kept every letter and every jot and every tittle of it. We can't do that. But because he's our substitute on the cross and he died in our place, if we believe in him, we can fulfill God's law 
through his faithfulness and his obedience. And one day, a day that's guaranteed, he will come back and we will struggle no more with this sinful flesh that we live in. But until then, he's our representative before God, keeping us right before him every day and every night. And that's good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray.